The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. Today's topic, Super Bowl Fever. It ain't healthy. But what's the cure? Learn about a brain-enhancing alternative to football. Plus, hear excerpts from author Steve Allman's interview, Tackle Football. For many Americans, Super Bowl Sunday is an all-consuming spectacle where money and mania coincide. Anxious fans overeat more than at any time except Thanksgiving. Did you know that? Isn't that amazing? That is is truly amazing. (laughs) And last week, tickets start at $3,100 each with fans also vying for overpriced airfares. But that's nothing compared to the price paid by football players themselves. Recent studies show 96% of NFL and 79% of college and high school players tested showed CTE, a serious brain disease. Former Super Bowl greats are bursting the bubble too. Tony Dorsett can't remember where to pick up his kids. And 36-year-old Antoine Randall L. regrets ever playing. Are there healthy alternatives to football, starting with our kids? You bet. On this show, you'll learn about Super Supportive Sundays, a family program emphasizing fitness, cooperation, service, and thought. Kids love it. And you'll hear excerpts from our October the 8th interview of Steve Ullman, author of Against Football, a searing indictment of the game Steve loves. Stay tuned for a game changer. And now, here's Beth. Hi. Welcome, everybody. Well, I am completely torn between wanting to tell you all about Super Supportive Sundays and wanting to get mad about football. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, I'm going to have to see which of my angels is going to win out here, mad or helpful. I want to tell you that there are alternatives. I mean, we are like, I don't know what we are. We're in some kind of a football fog. Not only that, National Hockey League kind of, you know, violence, like where we have just gotten so used to violence in sports, we think it's perfectly normal. And uh, it's not necessary. And this intense competitiveness ain't necessary either. And so we're going to have a great show today. We have an excerpt. It's a long excerpt, actually, from a fabulous interview we had with Steve Amon in October, but most of you didn't hear it. And I know you didn't. So we have included it in honor of Super Bowl Sunday, which means that I'm going to have to shut up and not talk during a lot of this show because we already have this pre-recorded. So we'll be inserting that. But in the meantime, we have some fabulous news from the inner revolution. And take it away, James. Thank you. Normally, we give you all kinds of positive news of the inner revolution. But today is special. In honor of Super Bowl Sunday, we are talking about football. And the bad news just keeps coming in. So what's good about that? That this kind of information is finally reaching the mass media. First, from Upworthy.com, January the 20th, 2016. This former football star is already showing signs of brain damage. In 2006, NFL Antoine Randall L. 
threw the game-clinching touchdown pass to win the Super Bowl for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Now, at the age of 36, his symptoms raise fears of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE, a brain disorder which has shortened the lives of other former NFL players. But the most impactful part of this story is that he says openly he regrets ever playing football. If I could go back, I wouldn't, Randall L. told the paper. I would play baseball. Now, this story was sent to us by Bob, one of our listeners. It's from the sports network ESPN.com, and it's dated February the 3rd. Really great that this kind of story is on ESPN. Another former NFL Super Bowl star, Oakland Raiders quarterback Ken Stabler, who died in 2015 at the age of 69, also suffered from the effects of CTE. During the years prior to his death, he would say, My head is rattling, and it intensified over the last several years. Isn't that awful? Oh, it really is. In a different but related story, last month we discovered that former New York Giants safety Tyler Sash was found to have advanced stages of CTE. Tyler died last September from a drug overdose. Tyler had advanced CTE at the age of 27. 27 years old, guys. Yep. After only two years in the NFL, his brother Josh said that Tyler sustained at least five concussions throughout his 16 years of playing football, two in high school, one in college, and two with the Giants. And Tyler isn't the only young man with evidence of CTE, and it's happening throughout the football world, including amateur sports. So don't think it's just the NFL. Here's a story from Reuters from January the 5th of this year. 25-year-old former college football player diagnosed with CTE. The athlete started playing American football at age 6. A 25-year-old former college football player who sustained repeated hits to the head showed signs of brain damage after his death. He died of cardiac arrest related to an infection in his heart, but the autopsy showed signs of brain damage consistent with CTE, researchers report in JAMA Neurology. This case, as well as many others, show us that in contact sports, athletes at the amateur level level are also at risk for this disease, lead study author Dr. Anne McKee of Boston University said. His history is revealing of the big picture. The athlete started playing American football at age six and continued for 16 years. He suffered more than 10 concussions, all while playing football, the first occurring at age eight None resulted in hospitalization. See, now that's really important. None of these concussions, you know, people think, oh, you have to be like, you know, half dead. No, none of these concussions even resulted in hospitalization. And look what it did to this kid. What was he, 25? Unbelievable. 25, yeah. 20, uh, 25. That's Go right. Ahead. And they're also talking about sub-concussions, like that aren't these big drama things, but sub-concussions give it to you too. That's right. Now, more bad news about the college scene. This is unbelievable. The story comes from stat.com, January the 8th. Disqualified after concussions, college football players are recruited back onto the field by other schools. The play that would be A.J. Long's last at Syracuse University ended with the sophomore crouched on the field, racked with pain, and cradling his throbbing head. The quarterback had suffered his third concussion during a practice in October when he collided with a charging defensive lineman who outweighed him by almost 100 pounds. 
He awoke the next morning in a fog, unable to tolerate even the dimmest light. Six days later, Long was told by the school doctor that he was off the team because of his history of concussions. He told me some alarming things, like by the age of 45, there is an increased risk of dementia. But where Syracuse officials saw grave risk, other colleges saw opportunity. Coaches from a half dozen other universities began wooing Long. College football players with a history of incapacitating concussions are allowed to transfer to colleges that will permit them to play, a stat investigation has found. This happens even after doctors at one school determine that the risk to a player's health is so severe that he should be permanently banned from contact sports. Isn't that absolutely shocking? And these are our educational institutions, institutions of higher learning that are knowingly damaging the brains of young men. Yes. If your blood is not curdling now, listen to this story reported by CBS News, January the 24th. Despite increasing evidence of long-term health effects of concussions, some young children are encouraged to play tackle football. Former NFL player Tony Dorsett stated, when he played in high school and college, nobody talked about concussions. And then if they did, then it's like, shake it off and get back out there. That's just what six-year-old MJ Kenner did. He plays for San Antonio's Tri-County Titans. After undergoing a concussion test from coaches, he got right back in the game. Kenner's mom, Siobhan, said she's not worried. He's a tough kid, and he's coached well. You know, kids get hurt. I mean, kids can get hurt anywhere. Right. Now, now here's some good news. There are a lot of people who are speaking up. The story was sent to us by one of our listeners, Tracy. It's from NPR.com, updated January the 10th, 2016. Anonymous football player details fear of health risks in NFL Confidential and talks about why he loathes the league. An anonymous professional football player whose new book is called NFL Confidential talks about the fear of injury from playing football. Johnny Anonymous says getting hurt is always on the mind of the player. The NFL is the only league, the only job you'll find in the world where we have a 100% injury rate. You have to take painkillers. If I'm playing a game, I cannot complete that game without painkillers. I will not be an effective player. He said that you realize that the only reason that you're there and the only reason that they want you there is to make money for the NFL. And they'll compensate you for that. He wrote in his book that the league is an expert at manipulating people, players, fans, coaches, and even him. If you have too many concussions on your list and your medical records, they'll weight that against you and not sign you back when your contract's up just out of the risk. Players don't want to be labeled injury-prone, so they keep playing despite the damage they incur. And our final football story caps it all. It focuses on the league itself. It was sent to us by our producer, Christine, and it's from the New York Times Magazine, February the 3rd. It's called Roger Goodell's Unstoppable Football Machine, how the NFL commissioner and a group of billionaire owners have kept the league on offense. Said one player, Nate Jackson, the reason football is so dangerous is that the men making the decisions are not the ones getting hit. Rather than I love her- that line. Could you read that again? <laughs> yeah. The reason football is so dangerous is that the men making the decisions are not the ones getting hit. Right. Like the pimps aren't the w- ones who are going out there getting the uh, infections. 
You know, if these were the if the owners were the ones getting hit, maybe they would switch to flag football so they really? would they wouldn't suffer brain damage to cut their lives short. So rather than admitting the obvious that the NFL was late to recognize the frequency and dangers of concussions, Commissioner Goodell is fond of pointing out the number of safety-related rule changes the league has made during his tenure, 39 to be precise. And yet, the number of concussions throughout the league is actually up this season. The NFL data shows a huge surge in reported concussions in 2015. In regular season games, reported concussions were up 58% over the previous year. NFL player Nate Jackson said that for all of Goodell's evangelism about making the game safer, back in the locker room, it's the same conversation as always. Hit them as hard as you expletive can. Meanwhile, the billionaire team owners are getting richer. The NFL's total revenue in 2015, $12.4 billion, is nearly double that of a decade earlier, $6.6 billion. Goodell has said he wants the NFL to achieve $25 billion in gross revenue by 2027. No league is as relentless when it comes to growth and making cash for its billionaire cartel. These billionaires are cutthroat businessmen and competitors but they also envision themselves as noble stewards of the community. Very noble. Said one owner, yeah, said one owner, (laughs) we provide a weekly display in which representatives from my town and your town meet up. Isn't that sweet? And we'll just have a big old time being relevant to one another. Oh, my goodness. Beth? Uh, I mean, you see what I mean? Should I? I can barely contain myself when I read this stuff. Well, first of all, of course, a good question is, are more concussions being reported or are more happening? Now, one of the things that we know is that these guys are getting bigger and faster and they're doing more damage, but hey. But you know what this story reminded me of? You know, the, the, that story about how uh, the players are hiding their concussions because they don't want to be cut. It, uh, and and the, uh, the fact that these uh, billionaires are offering such a wonderful opportunity to our youth, especially our disadvantaged youth, right, who go to play football because that's their opportunity. Well, what it reminds me of is that story that we did, a couple, oh, I don't know, last month or a month before. It was an interview with Andrew Morgan, who was the director of a fabulous film called The True Cost, and it was about cheap clothing. So this addiction of ours to have this cheap clothing, it's called fast fashion, is uh, spurring on the growth of this horrible, horrible industry where people are being exploited more and more, wages are more and more depressed around the world, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the world is being polluted, I mean, just without any conscience, but here is a guy in this film who was talking about how wonderful it is. Because, after all, it's giving job opportunities to these Bangladeshis who are getting poisoned, who have buildings collapsing on them. You know, it's like, why don't you turn us against each other? We're all scrambling. You know, those of us who are down here who are not the billionaires are scrambling to make a living. So we're fighting each other, right, in order to get the great job of being on that football team so that we can make the money so our family can come out of poverty. I mean, we have a friend, you know, her brother was a football player and, you know, he helped his whole family get out of poverty, but at what cost, right? And so they're fighting each other for these positions and 
at the expense of their health, and we're being told that what a great opportunity this is, and hey, this is not a problem. And see, the inner revolution, guys, is about us changing, about us really getting that the world needs to be about oneness, accountability, and mutual support. That is the idea. Well, these owners are not in the oneness with their players. They're not getting their brains bashed. They're not getting premature arthritis. They're not being, you know, on painkillers every day so that they can go to work. Unless they are, they're probably cocaine addicts, but I'm not going to say anything about that. But anyway, they're not in the oneness, and we are not in the oneness with those players because we're not really paying any attention to what's really happening to those, those kids. And there's no accountability for the, uh, you know, the damage. I, after all, even though there were suits against the NFL, and the NFL has uh, you know, been forced to pay out millions of dollars to former NFL players, uh, it's nothing compared to the damage that it's done. And nobody ha- has uh, had any criminal charges against the NFL for hiding the information that they already knew and that they were trying to keep quiet. I mean, why not? Why aren't they accountable for that? So it's about oneness. It's about accountability. It's about mutual support. We have got to change the consciousness in this country. What the heck are we doing supporting football? That's what I want to know. You know, it's, it's one thing to listen to these horror stories, and it's another to say, why are half the people in our country like, I think it's half, isn't it, who are engaged in this football mania? I don't get it. I just spoke today to this really sweet guy that I was talking to and, uh, on a totally different topic. Actually, it was on a mortgage matter. And... Uh, you know, I told him about our show today, and he said, well, he's a fa- uh, he doesn't like football. He's a hockey fan. Well, hockey, I mean, my God, they're going out slamming each other. You know, it's the same thing I said to him. How could such a nice guy like you be a fan of hockey? You know, I said, why don't you look at that? That's what we are going to be looking at today. We're not only looking at them. We're looking at us. We could pull the plug on football and all violent sports by just not turning on the TV, not filling those stadiums, get those billionaires down by not giving them our money. We're really supporting this. So this show, we're going to start with uh, an interview of um, Steve Almond, and we're going to be talking about what is really involved with football the stuff that, I mean, this guy was a devoted fan of football, and he just turned around and he stopped watching. But he's not telling you to, but he did. And um, after this interview, you're going to hear us talk about Super Supportive Sundays. But before we get to all of that, we thought, okay, give us a break, James. Give us a little good news. <laughs> okay, well, here's a really good piece of news. In Zimbabwe, where 31% of all girls are forced into marriage after they become teens, Two such teens just won a case in the highest court whereby people in Zimbabwe will no longer be allowed to enter into any marriage before they turn 18. Two girls! Two girls! Look what two girls could do! What's with us? Can't we do something? (laughs) Go for it. And then another news item. Iowa fast food workers struck back. I'm sorry, the one on strike ahead of the Republican debate before the Iowa caucuses, seeking a $15 per hour minimum wage and union rights. 48% of workers in Iowa make less than that. 
Now, what is shocking about that is that 48% of the workers in Iowa make less than $15 an hour. You know, if you are not living on $15 an hour or $10 an hour, so you can't even conceive of what that's like. I mean, how can people support a family on that kind of money? They're not even making $15 an hour. And yet, the Republicans are still getting votes from poor people, working people, who are being told by the Republicans, like Donald Trump said, wages are just too high. Do you see any of those guys, those millionaires going out, or billionaires going out there go, supporting the Iowan workers? I was shocked by that figure. But anyway, I loved that news. We had tons of great news stories today, but we gave it all up for football. Well, it's co-timely because we are, we are there. So we would like to bring on now this excerpt from this interview from October because you probably missed it, and it's great. And when this interview is over, we're going to come back and we're going to give you good news. So... Let's gear up to listen to our excerpt. Here's the deal with the medical data that's emerging uh, around football. It's really in a state of, um, it's, it's very unclear how prevalent brain damage is. And so let me just try to set out what, what the facts are that we know about. Yes. Um, a number of players, NFL players, either they or their families said that they wanted their brains looked at because they were having cognitive difficulty. They thought it might be because of this chronic traumatic encephalopathy, this form of dementia that seems prevalent in in boxers and and football players. And so a very high percentage of them, as James mentioned, did did actually, their brains did reveal autopsies showed that they did have CTE, um, you know, something like 79 out of, uh, you know, 83 or something. But you have to know, remember, that's just the self-selected group of yes. players and their families who wanted their brains examined. The actual prevalence rate among all players is completely unknown. What we do know is that last year, one of the stories that um, was really very much undercovered was that the NFL submitted these documents in federal court in relation to this lawsuit that all these former players had filed against the NFL, in which the NFL actuaries estimated that up to 30% of retired players were going to suffer some form of long-term cognitive ailment, which is a polite legalese way of saying brain damage. So that's the NFL themselves admitting after years of denial and obfuscation and junk science that they they think that up to a third of their employees in this famous workplace in America (laughs) are going to suffer um, long-term cognitive ailments. That should be enough to shut down, it would be enough to shut down almost any other business in America. It would just be lights out, forget it. Um, If that was the the situation at McDonald's or if that was the situation at a... uh, you know, a coal mine, or if that was the situation in an industrial plant, 30% neurological, you know, permanent long-term brain damage, brain illness, forget it. We got to shut that company down and figure out another way to, to do business. But because it's football, there's this tremendous sort of moat of denial. And, um, you know, it's it's fans like me, frankly, just choosing to not feel that we are complicit in that arrangement. And that's really the central thing. You know, you're focused very much on the question of whether 
parents will allow kids to play, whether kids will play the game in, in junior high school, peewee football or high school football. And those are all very interesting and important questions that have real relevance to, especially for, you know, I've got three kids, so I think about mm-hmm. that all the time. Mm-hmm. But the larger question about the football industrial complex really redounds to individual fans who incur none of the risk. The thing about watching football is none of the fans sitting on their couches have to worry about either themselves suffering from some kind of bodily or brain injury or a loved one. The reason that we essentially can root for the game where the inevitable byproduct of it is that a significant number of the players end up brain damaged is precisely because we're insulated from the risk. It's what makes football very different from something like smoking, where the risk was incurred by the individual smoker. And it's really what protects people. If you want to talk about the inner revolution What needs to happen is for individual fans to recognize that they're not just passive in the uh, in in the arrangement. They are actually sponsoring the game when they watch it, because so much of the revenues from the game come from advertising, you know, and the passive consumption that we do on our couches every Sunday, Saturday, Thursday. Oh, my God, Steve, I could not agree with you more. And um, I think that, you know, what you're bringing up, of course, is. Uh, this this outrage that I feel about the NFL and uh, the lying and the complicity and the money making and the industry and all of that. And I want to add to that, not to take anything away from that, that uh, it's also happening to millions of kids who are out there playing football because their heroes are on the screen. You know, I, I see such a connection between that because I think you said that you started uh, connecting, bonding with your dad around football. Sure, yeah. And, um, you know, I, I have clients who are like, okay, they have this huge flat screen TVs. They've got the f- football going. They're watching, drinking beer, eating popcorn, whatever they're doing. You know, the son or the daughter comes in, and if they want to be with dad, you know, you sit there and you watch football, too, and it just becomes like this family occasion, right? Right. <laughs> and and uh, so this kid already has the idea that dad admires these guys. Well, and, dad does admire them. <laughs> I mean, yes, exactly. Right. Exactly. Dad does admire them. So if they want to be admired by dad, they want to be like those football players. So they start, you know, puffing themselves up into these little heroes. And when they're so young and they're already getting caught up in this whole competitive, violent way of being males in the world. And, uh, and nobody stops that. Nobody says there's something wrong with that. Well, I think, um, you know, what you're getting at is uh, I feel that football is essentially symptomatic of American culture and and especially the sort of unexamined, unreconstructed part of American culture that essentially has put up with the idea of, for instance, women being equal to men in the workplace and at home, has put up with the idea that um, people have the right to love whomever they want and they shouldn't be uh, deprived of legal rights because they happen to have a same-sex partner or whatever. People have put up with that, but I think deep within a certain unreconstructed part of masculine culture and, and identity is a yearning for patriarchal dominion. And oh, for, my God. I, oh, I so agree with you. Go and, on, go on. And, well, a way of being that doesn't suffer from the frustrations and disappointments and complications 
of having to truly live up to enlightened 2015 American values. And that the, the center of that, the capital of that place, the refuge really is football and sports in general, but football in particular. And, you know, I feel it as well. When I, when I was watching football, one of my favorite things to do, as I write about in the book, was to go to a bar with my friend Sean, who's another wonderful dad, a sensitive guy, a thoughtful guy, works, you know, in a very sophisticated job at MIT. He's this deeply humane, thoughtful guy, was a great football player who was so good. In fact, as I write in the book, he, he at about age 11 or 12, he uh, hit a guy on the football field and thought he'd killed him. And he really stopped playing after that because he was so um, shaken up by that. But he still loves the game and is still deeply connected to it. And, and we would seek a refuge from the complications and frustrations of our lives as fathers and breadwinners and, you know, sort of um, trying to be good, faithful, uh, attentive husbands. And all that <laughs> stuff is, it's wonderful, but it's also wonderful. And there's a particular kind of buzz about just going to watch a football game. And I know, Beth, you don't necessarily understand this, but it's yeah. extraordinarily, and I'm a writer, that's what I do for a living. Yeah. So I think a lot about narrative and what, and suspense and drama and what, interests us in a story and mm -hmm. football games are really brilliantly structured narrative the thing that we don't have in the in the united states in particular is a safe sanctioned way for men to really relate and connect and football provides that and it's able to bridge all these gaps class gaps political gaps moral gaps socioeconomic gaps you automatically have a ticket into a certain kind of discourse that's a beautiful virtuous thing and there's a lot of virtue in the game itself and so my book is not an attempt to condemn football but to say here's what's amazing and remarkable about it and alluring about it and unfortunately that is attached to all this other toxic stuff but oh, here, here's an point. idea that i'd like yeah, to share ahead. too yeah uh, we could keep all of those wonderful qualities if we were able to shift over to something like flag football which is Basically, you, you try to grab a flag out of somebody's belt, or they're trying to run by, or if they're, they're catching a pass and you pull the flag out, and that's where they stop. Uh, that, that way, you avoid so much of that violence, so much of that brutality, so much of that brain damage. So yeah. that could be a possible outlet for people who just have to have some form of football. But there still might be some element of touch, obviously, in terms of trying to block and so on. But uh, nonetheless, uh, there is that option as opposed to what we have now, which is the culture of violence. Well, yeah, I mean, the tough thing is that there is a certain, um, you know, portion of the audience. And I think it's important for people, if they're really going to have an inner revolution, right, they've got to be honest about why they come to certain things, why they consume them. And I think for a certain number of fans, probably a much larger number than would admit to it, you know, you'd have to give them truth serum. The fact that the game is dangerous, that there are big impacts, that the players incur more risk yeah. is yeah. part of the inherent thrill of it. It's why it's more exciting than other games and also more typically um, appealing to Americans in particular. We are, as a citizenry, a, a, a group of people who have a hyper-violent popular culture. We are swimming in a kind of pornographic violence. And the fact, you know, football is an expression of that. It's not the chief source of it. It's not the cause of it. 
it's an expression of the need for men and some women to experience a certain kind of charge that comes from almost a spiritual regeneration that comes from violence, the consumption of violence, the sort of vicarious absorption of those thrilling spectacles, those dangerous spectacles. And in that sense, to me, it's really kind of symptomatic of a, of a certain kind of decadence that feels Roman in nature. You know, this is what cultures, empires do at the end of their run when things have become, when we've become sort of disconnected as a society and found, you know, we, we don't have empathic ways of connecting anymore. We have bread and circuses which distract us from uh, the malfeasance and irresponsibility and, you know, greed of our leadership and our political structures and so forth. I think football is there in many ways to kind of feed a sense of rage and frustration that is purely the result of late model capitalism doing a number on our souls. But isn't that, that is the point, Steve. And I think that people have to be completely disconnected from themselves and their own souls in order to watch football and not see what's happening. You know, when I was a little girl, I was brought up, you know, with classical music and stuff like that. I came from a working class family. Believe me, we were not, we didn't have it, but we were Jewish and so we had a lot of culture, right? Free culture. And, um, you know, there was football in our house a little bit, but I, I walked away when I was a child. I looked at this because I'm an empath, right? I'm, I'm psychic and intuitive. I could feel it. It's not just brain injuries. It's all the injuries. It's these right. people are hurting each other. And I walked away and I couldn't look at it. But, you know, I looked at ballet. Right. And these, these people are also hurting themselves. And uh, you know what I mean? There's the same issue, but of course, and it looks completely different. Oh, they're standing on their toes. They're so graceful. They weigh 32 pounds. They haven't right. eaten in six years. You know what I mean? <laughs> George Balanchine. And, uh, you know, they make these will, and I can't help it. I look at it and I see the beauty in it, but I have to turn it off because right. there, there's something in me that says, no, that's not the way to feed ourselves. We need to look at whatever is causing this need to be so violent or, as, you know, as in the case of football. I agree with you. I mean, it's the car crashes that you see, you know, NASCAR races. It's uh, the guy getting punched out in the, you know, in the ring. Uh, it's, but, but what, it re- what I think it is reflecting, and I don't think you would disagree with that. I think we're really on the same page, is that we are so disconnected from ourselves and each other. That we don't feel in our bodies th- how it is feeling to those football players. It's, it's like everything is a video game where right. these are unreal characters. Uh, war is so much, you know, uh, done by people who push buttons and drop bombs somewhere else. They right. don't even have to see it. You know, right. at least when they drop the bomb over Hiroshima, somebody had to see that bomb go off. And so that we're so disconnected from ourselves. And I have to, I believe, I trust, I have to, or I would give up (laughs) that if people start to get it, if they read your book and then they begin to see the numbers and they hear people like Chris Borland, you know, who retired early. And he talks about what was going on at the University of Wisconsin and the physical damage and all of that, you know, and, and how unreal that game was. (laughs) 
And you begin to feel in your body when you reconnect to yourself and you reconnect in an empathic way to everyone else on the planet, whether they're black, they're white, they're gay, they're straight, they're Muslim, that whatever they are, then we begin to feel what we are doing to each other and to ourselves. That's when accountability can happen and when we can make that decision. And I would like to come back to the issue of the culture of violence and make two points. One is that women are part of it. You know, I, it's something that I'm sad to report. But not only do you see women jumping up and down at football games and cheerleaders going out there and, you know, women say yes to men who play football, um, but it's it comes back to some part of women that wants that patriarchal society, that wants to feel that there's some masculine man who's somehow going to save us from the problems of the world and all those dangers. And, hey, guys, it's not real. When we set men up to be violent or powerful, what we're doing is we're setting them up to hit us. <laughs> you know what I mean? We're, we're, we're setting them up to try to be the heroes that they can never be. They can never really even live up to that. And we're setting up men to carry on that old patriarchy. So we can't have it both ways. We can't be asking for equality and at the same time ask men to protect us because that just doesn't work. But the other point about that, you know, the, the culture of violence is that I, you know, one thought that I have is that people really feel very disempowered in our world. Uh, you know, you go to work. I don't care how high you are in the corporate totem pole. You're, there's always somebody else you have to, you know, listen to. You feel like everybody's pushing on you. Everybody's pulling on you. Everybody wants something from you. Uh, you know, people feel like they're very disempowered in our world. And it, the, the, the disempowerment comes out in violence in so many ways, whether you're, you know, a Muslim who feels disempowered and trying to blow up other people or <laughs> you're a guy who feels disempowered or a woman who feels disempowered and beats on her kids. I mean, we're, I think that that is really the, the epidemic of our having not real power. And real power comes from the connection to ourselves and from our own wholeness. And I don't think we've got it. Yeah, you know, I think one thing that you're getting at here is football, I think, for a lot of uh, men in particular, but women as well, um, they're looking for something that grants violence a, a, an acceptable and even a heroic context. I mean, you have to realize that the culture of football is very much an emphasis on a, a definition of courage that's purely physical courage. There's very little about, and in fact, um, it's the opposite of moral courage. You know, I think a lot about uh, people like Martin Luther King, um, since so many of the players in the NFL and at the college level are African American, yes. you think, well, gee, what would uh, you know? What would Martin Luther King make of this game? What would he make of the idea that the way to empower, quote unquote, certain kids in our culture, by which we really mean poor kids, kids from economically disadvantaged neighborhoods, and usually kids of color, is not to give them better schools or support for working families or economic opportunity in their communities. No, the way to do it is to give them the possibility of this golden ticket of becoming really, really rich and really famous for being really good at, a, at an extraordinarily violent game. It's completely perverse. But on the other hand, for fans themselves, if, you, if we're really going to ask that people look within themselves and try to wean themselves off the game, 
I wrote the book in the way I did because I didn't want to scold people and say, you're idiots, you're violence, you're savages, get away from that screen, because that's not really how you get across to people. You have to say, I too love the game. I too find value in it in these particular ways. It's filling a certain void within me that desperately needs to be filled. The writer Frederick Exley in his novel, his wonderful novel, uh, a fan's note, right, right, writes a, a line that's something like, I gave myself over to the New York Giants and my recompense was a feeling of being truly alive. That's an actual feeling that a lot of fans, especially of football, have, that they, the game makes them feel alive in a certain way. And the question then becomes, are there other ways to be made to feel alive, to be brought out of the kind of neurasthenic haze that I think late model capitalism puts a lot of people in, from which the only way to be awakened is sort of extreme, sanitized violence? Well, yes, but see, I can't say what you say, uh, Steve, so I can't say I love the game. I, I can't, I don't love the game. I, I, I cannot disconnect myself from right. the pain of the people. I am not shaming anybody, and I hope I haven't given that impression. I'm just saying that I don't feel that way. I can't say that. But I can say that I understand that people have a need for self-expression and empowerment. And, in fact, we're starting a campaign. This was the thing that's been keeping me up for nights. After after your book and uh, the League of Denial and everything is like, what can we do, people right. who really want to help? And uh, today I kind of came up with an idea, which we've been sort of playing with, which is called Unleashing the Power of Kids, Mobilizing Them for Fitness, Cooperation, Service, and Thought. And it starts with wanting to replace football with something better and looking at what kids really need. You know, that they need physical fitness. I never got physical fitness. I've been sick since I was a child. Hmm. And I think that may be part of why I'm so sensitive, not only to the concussion issue, but the physical damage, because I know what it's like to live in chronic pain. I've had it for 55 years, because I became chronically ill when I was 15. And... uh, I could never do any of that stuff. And I said, you don't know what you're going to live with. You have no idea what this is really like. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I can see the tremendous value of physical fitness, how it's important for people on every level. But I also see that we can train people through physical fitness to cooperate. I, I believe that. I believe that our games could be, I mean, James and I had this funny thing. The, the first time I ever played a sport was I took a golf club I couldn't hit it the right way because I couldn't really pick it up. But I would just like kind of, I don't know, swing it. And James and I played golf. We played the same ball. Hmm. No competition. No competition. So, you know what I mean? And I, I, it was so fantastic. I, for the first time, I felt like I could actually do something physical. And And same same when we play uh, badminton. We, we try to keep the badminton, the, the birdie going instead of trying right. to score points off of our opponent. And right. it's so much so, fun. So it's cooperative and it's fun. And, and James hits it to me because he knows that I can barely move. And then the <laughs> other thing that, you know, the kids need that we all need is service because we need to feel like we're making a contribution. That's real empowerment, isn't it, Steve? When you feel like you've given something to somebody, you feel empowered in your heart. Like you, you don't feel so angry and destructive. And I mean, I don't want to lecture, but I just want to complete this. And thought is we need to support kids to do critical thinking or they're going to recreate the world as badly as we have. And right. so we're looking. <laughs> 
to, to create things like super supportive Sundays, unleashing the power of kids and giving kids these experiences. What, I don't think it's all accidental. Well, I mean, I know you're not saying it's accidental, but I think we're training ourselves and our children to find these outlets gratifying and satisfying. Why can't we use some consciousness and say, look, this is too damaging. This is too hurtful. Uh, too many women are beaten on Super Bowl Sunday. Mm-hmm. You know, the violence against women goes up. This is not good. You know, why can't we train kids to be conscious and to be healthy and to have real empowerment? Well, I guess, you know, maybe they would overthrow the whole darn system if they really got that good. But, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, those are the kind of things that I'm playing with to not to shame people, but to say there are alternatives. I mean, what have you been thinking about? Well, I think that the the central mission that I had in writing this book was to find a way to speak to fans of football, people who, because after all, you know, I'm not interested in preaching to people who are already turned off to the game. I really wanted to speak to people who, for whom it is, as with me, was a big part of my psychological, emotional, even spiritual life. I really was deeply into the game. So those are the people who I think recognize that the game is incredibly important to them, but also have this nagging feeling that there's something about it that is troubling and that they feel, you know, it doesn't express their values. The best thing that I could do was to say, I want to document this moral journey that I went on from being a, a really hardcore fan to being somebody who increasingly realized that in all these different ways, it was, it was going against the kind of society that I want to see, the kind of parent I want to be, the kind of citizen I want to be, and so forth. And that's the central thing that I want people to do is to read the book so I'm not the only person struggling with it. And so that eventually people can feel that they can step away from the game, not necessarily stop watching it altogether, but stop allowing it to consume so much of their internal life, take so much of their time, money, and attention that might otherwise go towards leading a more examined life, which I think necessarily means more connected, more empathic, more vulnerable to the world, and so forth. I just, I don't know exactly how that happens in a mass way until you speak to the, you know, more than half of the country watches the Super Bowl and probably I'll say a th- maybe a third or a fourth of the country are, are really serious football fans. And those are the guys who, or at least some of the people who I want to, to connect some of the dots that we as, as Americans tend to keep unexamined. We all love bacon, but we don't want to visit the slaughterhouse. What oh, I'm trying- God, yes. Right. So what what I'm trying to get people to do is just in this one small way, examine the sport, everything that it is, and um, then make up their own minds. I, I really feel like, you know, it's a great thing to, uh, to you know, be somebody who says, I want to lead a campaign and so forth. The only campaign I want to lead is the inner revolution of individual fans who read about the game, who love the game, who love the players and admire them and are forced to think a little bit more deeply about well, what exactly does this sport do to the players themselves who I so admire? What is it, you know, how, are, how has the sport found a way to take my idealistic in um, my devotion to athletic heroism and turned it into this huge nihilistic engine of greed 
how, you know, what's, what are my options here? And you're really, your only options are you either turn away from the game or you are supporting the, the larger scheme. You can't say, well, I, I really hate the game or I, I don't like the violence. If you're watching it, you're a sponsor. I think, I think fans have a whole bunch of rationalizations that they come up with. I know because I did myself for so many years. And the real key when it's really going to start to change is when people do that difficult step of starting to do some self-examination around what the game is and why they're drawn to it and what they're, not just what it does for us, but what it does to us. That was Steve Amon, the author of Against Football, a fan's reluctant manifesto. If you want to hear the rest of that interview, that interview was October 8th, or check out his book, But since that interview, there has been so much new information. The film Concussion came out. All those stories that James shared with us in the beginning uh, have come out. There is such a new awakening. We were told uh, recently by a guy in uh, a music store in our local city that more and more of the young people are going for band instruments to become part of the marching band because they don't want to be part of the football team anymore. So something is taking place. There is an inner revolution, even if it's just to protect your own butt. You know, to there, something is taking place where people are kind of waking up uh, from this. And I'm very appreciative of that somebody like Steve was one of the early people who came out and spoke up. One of the things that Steve talked about is how much this dog and pony show of, you know, everybody rawing, rawing and all that stuff and getting all their feelings of power from watching these men kill each other, uh, that this is really a way of deflecting people from making the fight for their own well-being and really seeing what's going on in our society. And I think that's a very valuable point, don't you, James? Uh, Yes, I do. And by the way, I'd like to encourage people, uh, you know, uh, that movie, Concussion, with Will Smith, is tr- is, gives a tremendous uh, understanding of why humans are not built to play football. They're not built to have those blows to the head. Uh, other species have protections uh, for, for having that sort of uh, activity, like woodpeckers uh, and so on, but we don't. And so we, we, have, no, we have no business... Uh, really destroying uh, and, and damaging our, our brains uh, with a, a violent sport like that. Thank you, James. I want to talk a little bit more about uh, alternatives. You know, I think the whole issue of alternatives is up for us. I think a lot of our audience, you know, agrees with what we're saying. They really get it. Sometimes they feel conflicted because their own kids want to play football or because They've been fans like Steve, but it's not just around football. It's like, what are the alternatives to the way that we live? And so our Super Supporter Sundays, which was an idea in October, is now a flourishing program. In Southern California, in the San Diego area, we have had great uh, events where we've had fitness, cooperation, uh, service, and thought, and we've taken on many different topics, but the kids love this program. In fact, sometimes the parents saying, oh, well, that was okay, and the kids said, no, I want to come back. 
<laughs> because kids feel included. They're not competing. They feel alive in a different way. You know, just what Steve was talking about is that it gives people a sense of being alive. There are many ways to feel alive. Service is a way of being alive. Cooperative play is a way of feeling alive. Um, fighting against the things that are wrong in ourselves primarily and in our world is a way of feeling alive. There's a lot of ways to feel alive that don't require us to hurt each other. On the contrary. So it's like our whole culture and our whole way of thinking is like we think that competition came down. It's the 11th commandment. Thou shalt compete. I don't remember that one being in the book. Do you, James? Uh, no, I don't remember that one being there either. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, you know, we act as though it's absolute gospel that we have to compete in order to thrive when actually cooperation is a much better way of thriving. So, you know, we've got a lot of stuff going on. And the innerrevolution.org is the name of our organization. I want to just tell you a little bit. I'm an, an intuitive counselor. I do individual counseling in 15-minute segments, believe it or not, uh, on the phone. Uh, I run groups. We do them by video conference, so you can be anywhere in the world. And we have a couples groups. We have a men's group that has really come out and is talking about different ways of being a man. We have um, other groups as well and other kinds of workshops. This fa- our family program is incredible. And I do a variety of consciousness training, and we'd love to invite new people to find out about what we're doing and get involved. That's the innerrevolution.org. The innerrevolution.org is just one word. We also have a fabulous Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the inner rev. And on it, you will see all kinds of posts, not only of our radio show, but we have, I just did a blog on the 2016 election on the questions that we're not asking, much less answering. And we are really promoting like a new way of thinking, a new consciousness. And we also support all the other people who are doing great things. We support them on our Facebook page and on our radio show. We have great guests. I really would like to invite you to Join us in any possible way you can. Just first find out about what we're doing. We need a revolution, like Bernie Sanders said, but we need an inner revolution because without that, we're, everything else is going to go to pot. So, James, why don't you tell us what's happening next week? Okay, uh, coming up next week, just before Valentine's Day, we're on the theme of what do we love and why? The battle for the Valentine's Day guest spot. An interview with either St. Valentine or the hilarious Madame Mazurka, whoever wins. St. Valentine and Madame Mazurka are battling to be the guest on this show. By legend, Valentine is a third century priest who defied the Romans and married couples, even though the empire wanted young men to stay unmarried so they'd be more likely to be better killing machines. Football players. Yeah, really. (laughs) With swords. St. Valentine says his voice should be heard to counteract all the romantic and commercial nonsense about the day. He also claims priority because the day was named after him. Madame Mazurka is a hilarious dead Transylvanian psychic who knows all about love and who thinks she has more to say than a churchman. 
She says her experience and willingness to tell the truth will blow the lid off Valentine's Day. Tune into our show to find out who nabs the guest spot. Whoever wins, this show will be a hilarious but searing conversation about love, relationships, fantasy, and reality. It will also answer your Valentine's Day gift prayer. Keep your money in your pocket and treat your Valentine to a great radio show. And now for a final word from Beth. I can't wait to find out myself. By the way, if you ever look at our e-cards, you'll see Madame Mazurka is me with a scarf on, and I'd become a Transylvanian psychic. And then uh, St. Valentine's is me wearing James' robe with a hood over my head. So they've been battling it out, and I'm looking forward to the show. And, uh, you know, it's a very serious topic. We try to have as much fun as possible with the awful things that are going on in our world. And so we invite you to join us. And please support this program by passing it on to your friends. We need to go from that little spark to the greater flame of an inner revolution, and only you can do it for us. God bless, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Interrevolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.